Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I'm going to tell you a story about this really terrible date that I went on a couple weeks ago, but before I tell you that story, I have to tell you this one. When I worked at a big chain restaurant a couple years ago, and we'll call it the the pumpkin pie warehouse, I, I was, as I think I've mentioned in the past, a host. And there were a bunch of little tasks that I was supposed to juggle during my shift, but mostly, apart from cleaning the bathrooms, I was supposed to greet guests and then escort them to their table. The way it worked is that a guest would come up, they would tell the woman at the computer, whose position it was called filler, they would tell her how big their party was and whether they wanted a booth or a table. And then the the filler would choose where they were going to sit, I would collect however many menus they needed, and I would escort them to that table or booth, whatever. Over the course of my nine months working here at the at the Pecan Pickle Consortium, there was really only one ethical quandary that I was bumping my head against all the time. And it was rooted in the fact that I was sometimes put in a position of having to escort an overweight person or persons to a booth where I knew, without having to go the distance, that they would not be able to fit. And then I would have to decide on one of two unpleasant courses of action. The way it normally unfolded here at, at the Spaghetti Festival is I would escort them to the booth, just as they had request. Most people who come into the into that restaurant um, request a booth. So I would walk them there, and then I would stand by while they took their seats, and then just try to look as friendly and accommodating as possible as they struggled to get seated, and then paused, usually to consider whether the squeeze on their midsection was something that they could endure for the next 40 minutes, only to then decide, almost invariably, and maybe with like a self-deprecating quip or a flustered remark, or sometimes a look of just total embarrassed defeat, they would just say, I can't, I can't fit here, we need, we need to sit in a table instead. And after that, I would escort them back to the front of the restaurant, we would find an available table, and I would take them there. But here's the rub. The chairs at the cheese at, at the uh, at the lasagna brigade. These the chairs all have arms on them, and a person who can't fit in a booth won't likely be able to fit in one of the chairs either. So, what does this mean for the guest? Well, technically speaking, it's not much of an issue. I, the host, simply run off toward the bathroom area, and I grab one of our handful of armless chairs. I bring that armless chair to the table, I swap it out with one of the chairs that has arms on it, and the guests can take their seat, and the dining experience can begin. So technically speaking, it's very easily resolved. It's hardly an issue at all. Emotionally, though, it's a pretty big issue, and I saw several people edging toward tears by the time I got back with an armless chair, humiliated after having been conspicuously unable to fit in two different seating arrangements, the second of which was supposed to be more spacious than the first. So, in clearer terms, the the conundrum I was facing here at the Lasagna Brigade is this. Let's say that I escort a guest to a booth, as they have requested, but it turns out once we get there that they don't fit in the booth, and they look really humiliated about it. I now have to escort them to a table, to a chair, where they're also not going to fit, and where their humiliation or their anger is about to be compounded. I know, in other words, that once we get to the table, I'm going to have to take away that person's chair and replace it with an armless one. So the question is this, do I A, run up ahead of the guest and swap an armed chair for an armless one before they've even had to try to sit down? 
that would, on the one hand, save them the potential embarrassment of not being able to fit into two consecutive seats. But bear in mind, this means that they would see me swap the chair before they've even had a chance to try sitting in it, which would probably look presumptuous on my part, this wordless acknowledgement and maybe aggrandizement of their size. They might take offense to think that I'm, st I'm jumping to some cruel conclusion about what kinds of chairs can and cannot accommodate them. But on the bright side, again, they won't have to be humiliated by publicly struggling into and finding themselves resisted by a second seating arrangement. Or option B, would it be more flattering for the guest if I escort them to the table, wait to see them settle and struggle in the chair, and then feign surprise and tell them as cordially as possible and with a quick apology and no hullabaloo that I'll be right back with something more comfortable? Incidentally, everyone agrees that it, it was always it was pretty weird that a restaurant which is famous for serving, you know, four pound egregious portions of everything would not have the sort of furniture that could more easily accommodate a large guest. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. One possible solution that people have thrown at me is to just make all of the chairs in the restaurant armless. Well, here's the thing. Chairs with arms on them are considerably more comfortable for the overwhelming majority of guests. They get to lean back. They get to luxuriate. When you walk around the cheesecake, the, um, when the, the gingerbread courtroom, and you see that virtually nobody is leaning forward with their elbows on the table, you, you see, oh, they're all reclined. They're leaning back. They're more comfortable. So, okay, so if that's the case, then another solution, you might say, is that after a party has proven too large for a booth, I can lead them back to the waiting area for just a moment while I run to the table where they will be sitting, and I swap all of the chairs at that table for armless chairs. Then they don't have to see it happen and whatever. But here's the thing. The Spaghetti Gulag's armchairs are also slightly lower to the ground than the normal chairs that have arms on them. The height difference is almost imperceptible, but it's also pretty perceptible. So apart from the people at that table being able to look around the sitting area and see that every other table has chairs with arms on them, the guests in their armless chairs will also find that they're now suddenly shorter than everyone else at the restaurant. So you can see this is kind of a tricky thing. And what made it feel even dicier is that at some point in these nine months that I happened to be working there, I also happened to read Roxane Gay's memoir, Hunger, where she talks about living with her body, which, apart from having black skin and a woman's anatomy, is also very tall and overweight. It, it kind of it drives home for you that, that line from Susan Sontag's diary about the soul being harnessed to the flesh. In her memoir, Roxanne Gay points out that one of the painful ironies of being so large, of taking up lots of space and therefore being considerably more visible than most people, is that because you are more visible, people seem to not want to look at you. Maybe this is because they're being cruel and they're trying to show that they're repulsed by your size. Or maybe it's a well-intentioned effort to not stare. Whatever the case, this phenomenon of being both exceptionally visible and kind of socially invisible ends up creating, at least for Roxanne Gay, this conflicting feeling of wanting desperately to be seen, to be acknowledged, while at the same time wanting very much to disappear. She also talks about the actual physical pain of being so large, like the perpetual ache in her joints, the, you know, the back, the neck, the general pain of forcing herself into, into public spaces that were made to accommodate smaller bodies than her own. There's even a section of the book where she talks about the special horror of visiting restaurants and how her friends will invite her out to eat somewhere, but before agreeing, she'll have to hop on Google and she'll find pictures of the bar and the sitting area and try to get a sense of whether it's the kind of place where she will be able to fit. Not even necessarily comfortably, because she kind of gives you the idea that comfort is pretty much out of the question. It's just, will she be made to look foolish? I don't mean to suggest that I was in any way the, the victim or the one suffering in any of these encounters. I only mean to point out that this was a formative experience and it opened my eyes to an aspect of other people's lives that I would not otherwise have known so intimately.
And so I like to think, if I can be so presumptuous, that it made me more sympathetic, more compassionate. But anyway, that's okay, so that's the prologue. And now, the very bad date. I met a woman on Hinge recently who seemed totally normal and friendly and pretty, and she lives on Brickell, which is just a few blocks away. I live um, in Little Havana, and she suggested that we meet at a bar that I happen to already go to on a fairly regular basis. It's called The Big Easy. It's on the third floor of Brickell City Center. It's a, it's a nice laid-back place. So time passes, the day arrives, I put on my dating shirt, and I get to the bar at the appointed time. And my date shows up a few minutes later, and after some initial hellos and, and pleasantries, whatever, she hops up on the stool beside me, she gets a menu from the bartender, and then, with the menu resting flat on the bar, she rushes her face at it. Like her nose was literally not even an inch from the page, and she did it with such disarmingly practiced speed. I honestly thought for a second that she was just smashing her face into the counter. But so then she starts running a finger down the list of appetizers, and she tells me, without looking up, that the last time she came here, to the Big Easy, she had the pork belly flatbread, and she said that she liked it, but she doesn't want to do the same dish twice. And so she reads off the appetizers to me one by one, asking which of them sound, and here she throws a little toothy smile my way, appetizing. All I really contribute to the process is I eliminate the seafood options, because I'm not big on seafood. Obviously, this is not particularly helpful. So she flags the bartender and recruits him into the task of finding an appetizer. Bartender comes up to us, and she starts reading the menu items off to him, just as she did to me, one by one, beginning at the top of the menu, working her way down, and asking him if he recommends them. And the bartender, as you could probably predict, is is pretty partial to the menu. She points at something. She says, is this good? He says, yeah, that's good. She points at another thing. She says, how about this? Is this good? Oh, yes, that's very that's good. Very that's good. very that's good. good. That's very good. The whole process takes about five minutes, and but finally she settles on the pork belly flatbread. Bartender nods. He makes notes. Says, okay, pork belly flatbread. Good choice. Good choice. And then he says, uh, what do you want to drink? And she says, hmm, good question. Can I see a drink menu? The bartender sets the drink menu down in front of her on the bar, and she starts reading off the options one by one. She points at a drink with the word mint in the title, and then she says to the bartender, how does this taste? And the bartender allows for a pause, and he looks at me, and then he looks at her, and he blinks, and he says to her, of the drink with the word mint in the title, that it tastes, quote, kinda minty. Finally, she orders the minty thing, but she adds in an urgent way, I hate ice, though. No ice. And I realize she's just referring to the drink, that she doesn't actually hate frozen water. But the sentence stays with me for the rest of the night and for days afterward. I hate ice. I hate ice. It's like if, if you and I are getting to know each other and you said to me, Alex, what's something you really hate? And I said, what do I hate? I'll tell you what I hate. Trees. Finally, we get our drinks. We, you know, click glasses, whatever. And we start talking about work and whatever. And in what seems like just a few minutes, the flatbread arrives. And when it arrives looking nice on the cutting board and very presentable. She says, oh, wow. And then she gets her phone out of her purse. She hikes herself up on the stool so that she's standing on her knees, rising like a praying mantis over the bar, looming over everyone. But so from this crazy nine-foot height, towering over everyone, my date holds her cell phone up and starts taking photographs of the flatbread with her flash on. She takes five photos. 
And our bartender, who, who has served me a few times before this, the, the guy who just told her as gently as possible that you know, the mint-flavored drink tastes like mint, he leans out from behind the liquor display and he gives me a wide-eyed look and, and kind of gestures around to the otherwise dark and, and relaxed, quiet mood of the bar. And you, he's asking me with his eyes to, like, please make her stop taking photos. But but what am I going to do? Am I going to kick the stool out from under her so she goes vaulting over the bar? Eventually, mercifully, the photo shoot ends. And she sits and we eat. And in our conversation about, you know, restaurants and food, she gets to talking at length about her own administrative job in hospitality. She works in an office on Brickle, managing travel plans for a certain demographic. And she talks about how she's occasionally tasked with uh, devising a special kind of itinerary for certain well-to-do people. Let's say, for instance, that there's a client who is interested in this or that aspect of the Arctic, to which they'll be taking a luxury cruise, but they're not interested in these and those aspects of the Arctic. Well, it's my date's responsibility to map out what they should do for their trip in order to accommodate those interests. Then, she schedules it all accordingly and goes about making the necessary accommodations. It's a, it's a, it's a luxury travel agency. Anyways, I, I was asking question after question, and after a while, she you know, kicked the ball into my court, started asking me about myself, if I travel, etc., which... Is, is a bit of a sore spot, frankly, the whole travel thing. I look on all these uh, dating apps and I see that seemingly all of the single women in my area, in my age group, have traveled extensively. And not just to like B London and Berlin, like the cultural hotspots with standard touristy things to do. These women are going to like Bangladesh and like fucking Tatooine. They've got pictures of themselves on camels and like navigating sailboats and wearing chainmail. They all look cultured as fuck and they're like drinking aperitifs and uh, chocolate with insects inside. And, and meanwhile, I've never left the country. And what's doubly intimidating is that apart from their, their having clearly already traveled extensively in their past, they talk in their profiles about wanting to do more of it. There's this prompt on Hinge's dating profile that says, um, I want a partner with whom I can dot dot dot, and then you, and then you get to fill it out. And a disarming number of women write, I want a partner with whom I can dot dot dot, travel the world. And I'm sitting here reading that in like my roach infested apartment in Little Havana, eating ramen for the ninth night in a row, like... The farthest I can take you is Aventura. But anyway, back to the date. Um, she asks if I travel, and of course I don't travel, I hardly I hardly eat. But I've been drinking at this point, and I veer the conversation back toward uh, this one aspect of, of her hospitality work, what I just mentioned, um, about how she in her daily life finds herself tailoring people's itineraries to their interests, to their needs. And suddenly I see this kind of tenuous relationship between that experience of hospitality and my own experience in hospitality from when I worked at the at the, the place, the, the Swordfish Trombone. And so I recount to her what I just recounted to you a couple minutes ago about um, escorting larger guests to their booths, where they, the, the booths where they couldn't fit, and then the conundrum about the chairs with arms versus the armless chairs. And then at one point, she interrupts and she says, or you could solve the whole problem by putting a sign out front that says, no fatties. And then she grins in the most venomous, self-satisfied way. A, a grin that tells me this is less of a joke than a conviction. And so the date, in other words, reaches its conclusion long before we've left. thing I read this week was somebody on Reddit, I forget what the forum was, but they were talking about this old story of a family that got murdered in their lovely provincial two-story farmhouse way out someplace in the snowy pastures of Europe. 
The town's name had lots of vowels and K's in it. The town itself had a couple thousand residents and was surrounded and defined by, the, by a forest that was thick and that wended its way through the layout of the place. Trees on trees and endless shrubbery seeming always to close in around a property but never quite ultimately doing so. And it was the most wealthy family of this little forest town community thing that ended up dying one night while it snowed. Story says that a couple days prior to the murders, the family's maid was complaining of paranormal shit going on in the house. She said that she could see the flames of candles bending and stretching in ways that bore little relation to the wind. Stepping out of her room for a moment and coming back, she would find that her chair had been turned away from the TV to face the window. The whole family gets murdered somehow in the middle of the night, and people say that the next morning there were footprints in the snow that came out from the surrounding woods toward the house, but none leaving back towards it, toward the trees and neighbors collectively reported two nights later that the house in question, though enclosed in police tape and ostensibly devoid of life, literally stained with death and absence, they claimed that the house plumed smoke up from its chimney, thin gray tendrils looking pale and secretive under the moon, while neighbors watched from disparate houses and cowered, as if the smoke were some gloating gesture from a thing that got away. And then, of course, in all these Reddit threads, there's the story of the photographer who goes camping by himself for a few nights out in the middle of nowhere, trying to get in touch with nature. And when he comes back to civilization and develops his film, he, he finds that there's one photo per night of himself asleep. And also there's the story you hear from every desolate part of this great nation's highway system about the lonesome late-night driver who sees a bloodied person crumpled on the side of the road, sort of pawing out toward the headlamps and crying for help. But then the mood of that story always shifts when the driver sees this person and then finds herself gripped suddenly by some intuitive and forbidding sense of fuck that shit. And so she proceeds, against her standard ethical tidings, to drive past the wounded person, to carry on toward her destination without stopping to offer help. And what happens? She gets a dozen or so yards down the road, looks in the rearview mirror, and sees the wounded person stand up from the road unscathed. In some versions of the story, you'll hear of men stepping out of the surrounding bushes with weapons, with rope, all of them just sort of watching the car drift off. Every few months, somebody goes on Reddit and asks, what's the scariest story you've ever heard? And we get the usual tales retold, all of them somehow newly creepy, despite their familiarity. Maybe it's because they speak to something timeless and endlessly relevant for us. In this case, what seems to come up over and over is the idea of the unseen assailant, waiting and watching us from maybe just a hair's breadth beyond the line of sight. Relentless and shapeless and ill-intentioned, and, strangely, immune to consequence. There's something extra horrible in the idea that nobody will know what happened to you, that we can be snapped out of existence without explanation, without answers. It reminds me of a passage from Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian that goes like this. Far out on the desert to the north, dust spouts rose wobbling and augured the earth, and some said they'd heard of pilgrims born aloft like dervishes in those mindless coils, to be dropped broken and bleeding upon the desert again, and there, perhaps, to watch the thing that had destroyed them lurch onward like some drunken gin and resolve itself once more into the elements from which it sprang. Out of that whirlwind no voice spoke, and the pilgrim lying in his broken bones may cry out, and in his anguish he might rage, but rage at what? And if the dried and blackened shell of him is found among the sands by travelers to come yet, who can discover the engine of his ruin? And then also there's that bit from the Ingmar Bergman movie, The Seventh Seal, which, which is the one that's famous for, you know, a knight is playing chess with death. Anyway, there's a scene where a stage actor is hanging out in the woods, and he climbs up a tree to some dangerous height, and then he just kind of hangs out there, and he's talking to himself, he's luxuriating, when suddenly he hears this strange scraping sound. He looks down, and there he sees 
the Grim Reaper, and the Grim Reaper is sawing at his tree. And so he calls out to him, and Death looks up, and the actor says, what are you doing? And Death says, I'm, I'm sawing down your tree, your time is up. The actor says, I don't have a time, and Death says, oh, you don't have a time. And of course, the actor can't deny that he's mortal, and you know he's going to have a time of death just like everyone else, and so he says, well, wh what about my upcoming show? Death shrugs. Cancelled. The actor says, what, what about my contracts? I have all these outstanding contracts. And Death shrugs. They're annulled. He says, aren't there, aren't there special accommodations for actors? And Death says, yeah, sometimes, but not in this case. And then he cuts down the tree, and the actor dies. For all the time, you played a two-handed game. Say second-handed love I can't see. It's good for some, but not for me. You can't be mine. And someone else is too. Bye-bye. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, oh, That was really solid, Pat. Hello. Hello. And Hello. Hello. What's next on the old Oh, menu? listen, boy. You ain't heard nothing yet. <laughs> you know what? Yesterday morning, I woke up with Monday morning. And it's Monday morning. Here oh, it here it comes. You know what else it kind of reminds me of real quick, this, this idea of death or the dreaded thing being kind of nameless and shapeless and immune to logic or consequences, is there's this short story from Franz Kafka called Before the Law. If it were written today, we'd call it flash fiction because it's, it's only a page long, I think. It's about a guy who needs to go to the law, capital L, to see about something. We never find out what his issue is because the issue doesn't matter. The point is, he needs to speak with the law, and so he goes to the building where the law resides. He gets there, he goes into a waiting room, and there's a big strong guard in front of a door that ostensibly leads to the law. He says to the guard, hey, I, I need to get in there, I need to speak with the law. And the guard says, okay, just uh, have a seat. So the guy has a seat. Days go by. The guy goes up to the guard again, he says, when, when am I going to get in? And the guard says, just wait, wait, you'll get in when it's your turn. And so the guy sits down again. Years and years go by, and the guy just keeps sitting there in the waiting room, twiddling his thumbs, no indication from anywhere that he's any closer to seeing the law today than he was when he first got here. And so eventually he starts trying to bribe the guard. He gives him his wristwatch, he gives him some cash, he gives him the wallet itself. And the guard takes these things and he says, I'm only taking these things so that you won't feel like there's anything you haven't tried. There's this famous anecdote that um, Burt Reynolds was once getting drunk with some famous heavyweight boxer of his day. I don't remember if it was Foreman or Frazier or who, but uh, after the fourth or fifth drink, um, Reynolds gets kind of pensive for a moment and he thinks, you know, if I took a swing at him right now and he's not expecting it, I could probably lay him out flat. And he starts kind of stroking his mustache about the thought. And, and the boxer sees him do this, and he goes, Don't do it, Bert. And, and Reynolds is kind of taken aback, and he blinks himself out of his reverie, and he goes, D Don't do what? And the boxer says, I know what you're thinking. Guys try it all the time. I'm telling you, don't do it. Well, here in the waiting room to get to the law, um, our guy starts looking at the guard in, in that same kind of funny way. And he's thinking, I'm just going to hit this guy, and then um, when he's down, I'm going to rush past him. And the guard sees it on, written on the guy's face, though. He sees that the guy is getting feisty, and so he tells him, Look, I'm really strong, and I'll, I, I know karate, whatever. He says, you're not, you're not getting past me, but even if you do, there's another door beyond this one, protected by an even stronger guard than me. And beyond that, there's another door, and another guard. And so our guy desists, and he goes back to waiting. The years continue to pass, and the man stays there waiting for his opportunity to speak with the law. He grows old in the process and eventually collapses. 
He's about to die on the waiting room floor. And he croaks out to the guard, What the fuck was this all about? Why can't I see the law? And why, after all these years, has nobody except me come here trying to see it? And the guard leans in low, and he shouts so that the old dying man can hear. And he says, This is a place to which no other person can gain entry. This waiting room, this portal, was created specifically for you. And now, I'm going to close it. Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, Chapter One. One morning, as Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he had been changed into a monstrous, verminous bug. He lay on his armor hard back and saw, as he lifted his head up a little, his brown arched abdomen divided up into rigid bow-like sections. From this height, the blanket just about ready to slide off. It's time for the quote of the week! Our quote of the week comes from David Shields and his wonderful memoir slash death meditation. It's a book with the brilliant title of The Thing About Life Is That One Day You'll Be Dead. Shields writes the following. Quote, My father has asked me to research the affordability and plausibility of cryonic suspension. He's willing to die, but he doesn't want to be dead forever. To David Shields and his father, we raise our glasses. Cheers! Cheers. Let's say hypothetically that you go on a date to your favorite bar in Miami, which for the sake of argument we'll say is John Martin's Irish pub in Coral Gables. The date is a success. Good conversation with a new companion. This person is entrepreneurial, uh, she's artsy, big on movies, very pretty and very friendly and smart and cool, but busy, dude, very, very, very busy. And thus, the person isn't super on top of texting. But you yourself don't want to be pushy with your text because, well, who wants to be pushy? So after the date, you just let things sit for a while. You focus on other things. You, you go about your business for a few days. You go to work. You do some chores. You apply to a few jobs. You answer some mail. And let's say hypothetically that one night, in all of your waiting, you go to dinner at your friend Danny's house. And Danny is a newlywed, so his wife is there with you too. You talk about life and sex and dating with uh, Danny's wife for a solid hour while Danny is in the kitchen preparing dinner. And she knows you well enough at this point that when you tell her about the, the terrible date from last week with the person who took photos of the flatbread, and then you convey your th enthusiasm about this very good date from this week, with the friendly, attractive photographer who, who's got no small resemblance to Madeline Kahn. You, know, you tell her about how you're still sitting all anxious and patient, just waiting and hoping to hear back from this person. You go through the whole spiel, and at the end of it, Danny's wife gives you a solid look, and she says to you, Alex, imagine for a moment that your name is Alex. She says, Alex, and what if she does get in touch, and she's really interested? You think you're really ready to do the relationship? You think you're going to make the time in your life, the space? Danny's wife has a point. You go home, and you're not sure if there's any meaning to this, but you, um, I had a dream the other night where I had to take my dog Mango for a walk, and so I, I grabbed his leash, and I hustled down the stairs to the sidewalk, and then I remembered that Mango's dead, and I looked toward my feet where he usually wiggled and wagged his tail, and he's not there, and in the dream, my phone starts buzzing real hard in my pocket with this flurry of incoming texts that I know are important and that I think are romantic, and I realize at the same time that the thing in my hand that I thought was a leash is actually a noose, and it isn't fitted for Mango's neck. It's fitted for mine. 
the sky is overcast and the wind's blowing and there's a sense of standing on the edge of something like I don't know where things are going from here but they're going that way quickly There's a woman in my neighborhood who I don't think lives on the streets necessarily because she goes about each day with a new set of clothes. Uh, she always looks showered and she's always got a healthy bounce to her very curly hair. But she talks to herself nonstop and stands idly on the sidewalk for what sometimes appears to be hours at a time. The only way I can tell this is because I'll pass her on my way to Pasión del Cielo at 8 a.m. and when I come back out, three or four hours later, she's standing in the same spot. Today, at the intersection of 8th Street and the I-95 on-ramp, she was drinking coffee out of a McDonald's cup and growling at some unseen person in a sad, angry, lock-jawed way. I muted my headphones so I could eavesdrop on the conversation, and I heard her say, No, Lord, I don't have a mailing address, and that's what's ruining my life. I have $500. And then she put a hand on her forehead, and she walked away, crying. The light changed and traffic rumbled forward, and I crossed the street toward Pasión del Cielo. It's the first Sunday morning in October, and the businesses around me, I notice, are beginning to hang paper ghosts in the windows. time again for one of my favorite segments on the Thousand Movie Project podcast. Welcome, friends, to the third installment of a segment I call David Remnick is Fucking Terrific. David Remnick is the polymathic all-aroundsman who edits The New Yorker and also hosts their flagship podcast, The New Yorker Radio Hour. A voracious consumer of culture in its wholeness, of tech and politics and movies and music and environment, David Remnick is a model of intellectual curiosity and, to be quite frank, a personal hero. Today's chapter in the culture cluster intellectual orgy that is David Remnick's career, we're going back to July of 2008. Leonard Cohen was still alive, The Dark Knight was just recently in theaters, and The Real Housewives was still something you could follow. In these ways and others, it was a simpler time. Barack Obama is still campaigning for the presidency, and he's being felled at every turn with questions and doubts about his nationality, his race, his agenda, his abilities, his alliances. The New Yorker, under Remnick's direction, puts a satirical cartoon on the cover that shows Barack Obama dressed, as NPR describes it, like Osama bin Laden. And his wife, Michelle Obama, is dressed on this cartoon cover in camo pants and combat boots. She's got an assault rifle slung over her back and her hair fashioned into a huge afro. She looks like a revolutionary. The two of them are bumping fists in the Oval Office while an American flag smolders in the fireplace. The cover, as you can imagine, gets people angry. But David Remnick, unbudging, defends it. He says to NPR that satire doesn't come with subtitles. In another interview, Remnick says more. He says that offended subscribers were calling his office in a huff, 
every day, day and night, day and night. Cancel my subscription. This is so offensive. Cancel my subscription. And then, mounting his horse at dusk, before taking off towards still greater horizons of journalistic adventure, David Remnick put his hat on and spat his toothpick into the sand before responding with nary a glance over his shoulder. Cancel your own fucking subscription. There goes another episode. I was hoping to get this up a few days ago, but I don't know what what the situation was. But this took this episode took me over twenty hours to finish. There was a lot of writing and rewriting involved, and I got this idea that like it's it's October, so I wanted to do sort of a Halloween themed episode. Then I wanted to do three Halloween episodes, which I imagine will hopefully now just manifest as two. But one of the things I I most loved when I was a kid was. The horror, like horror programming, but mostly the personalities that would occasionally introduce horror programming. Like I loved Elvira. I loved uh, the Crypt Keeper in Tales from the Crypt. I love uh, how Hitchcock behaved while introducing shit. Even one of the more obscure ones is uh, Jonathan Frakes when he hosted um, Factor Fiction. I even really liked Forrest Whitaker in the very shortly lived um, UPN reboot of The Twilight Zone. He played the Rod Serling sort of host, and I also love Rod Serling as the host of the original Twilight Zone. Anyway, the idea was I've got this show now, and I was like, oh, I can do sort of a Halloween-themed thing, and I can be one of those gallant uh, sort of, you know, dressed in a robe beside the fireplace story introducer people. And so I tried a bunch of things, and it didn't work out, and um, yeah, so now you've got the episode as it is with sort of like vague Halloween-y vibes. I don't know. Like most ideas, you you, you think about them for a long time, they gestate, uh, you start chiseling away at the stone, and what ends up emerging is nothing like you anticipated. But it's okay. I'm I'm fine with it. As for other things that are going on, um, last week I went and saw The Joker finally, and I liked it. I thought it was really, really good. Um, I don't think it's sort of the masterpiece that people are sa- uh, many people are saying it is. I do think a lot of the enthusiasm for Joker has to do just with the idea of comic book material being taken very seriously. And I do, But I do think that the movie is well made. Joaquin Phoenix's performance is obviously really good, but there is something missing. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that director Todd Phillips is so open about um, the movie's indebtedness to early Scorsese stuff, particularly Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. And so throughout the movie, whenever there would be a little reference to Taxi Driver, I would think the first thing that would come to mind is, okay, I am not watching Taxi Driver, but I am watching a movie that is supposed to be similar to Taxi Driver or to somehow embody the, the spirit of Taxi Driver. But being reminded of that simultaneously reminds you of the fact that it isn't like it's not totally succeeding at being taxi driver and i don't know exactly what the difference is i think part of it is that when you watch taxi driver you can kind of feel the anger of the filmmaker whereas here with the joker you do get a a kind of cold sense of craftsmanship so yeah it's good and maybe that's kind of a nitpicky complaint but there is just some amorphous thing that's missing i don't know what it is i'm totally down to watch it again and i'm i'm seeing many of my friends have gone two and three times and apparently the movie holds up and is still entertaining so I will definitely see it again at some point and maybe I'll have clearer thoughts. I remember fucking going to see Tarantino's Hateful Eight um, uh, like the day after Christmas and when it was doing the roadshow thing it was the three hour cut. I went to see it with my friend and I remember walking out of it being thrilled with the experience but then a couple days later thinking, I don't know if I liked that movie. And so on New Year's Eve, like in the afternoon, I went and I saw the digital version, which was only two hours and 45 minutes at Sunset Place. And 
I remember going to Mellow Mushroom downstairs afterward. Mellow Mushroom is no longer there. And I sat at the bar with a notebook and I started making notes about the movie and my impressions of it. And like, I just could not make up my mind about whether it was good or not. When it came out on DVD, I rented it and I watched it again. I couldn't make up my mind if I liked it. And then finally, like three years later, I watched it and I watched it a fourth time and I realized that I don't like it. And the reason I don't like it is because of the flashback scene. I don't know if you've seen Hateful Eight. But anyway, there's this flashback scene that is not, is not a fun or exciting kind of violence that feels like a weird thing to say. But as I was talking with uh, my friend Pavel Klein, uh, who's been on the show before, I was talking about that scene with him recently, and we were agreeing that it was kind of a ma- it seemed like a manifestation of anger. Uh, it, it was almost like a, it's the scene is like punishing the audience in a weird way, in a weird way that I don't think Tarantino ever did before that. Anyway, those are my thoughts about the Joker. Otherwise, as for things that have been going on, um, in the past couple weeks, I have been sort of pursuing sponsors for the podcast, local sponsors. I don't want to say who they are at the moment, but I've been reaching out, and, and they're surprisingly receptive. I tried doing this about a year ago, and the the show, if you go back and listen to those episodes from a year ago, they're just, they're just awful and shapeless and weird and awkward. So when I tried it back then, people weren't really interested, and understandably, I mean, I didn't really have much of an audience. But now, surprisingly, just by mentioning that um, I think about a thousand listeners are logged. Um, businesses do seem interested, uh, at least mildly. Really, they're just like responding to my pitch and saying that, you know, expressing mild interest and then asking to see numbers. It's a little intimidating. I don't know how that might change things. Yeah, there's a lot to consider there, but I, I think I need to let it marinate. In the same way that some other social things, some sort of momentous social things happened to me in the past few days. And um, I, I keep talking about them with friends and obviously this is sort of like the therapeutic part at the end of the show where I should kind of free associate and um, give a hot take on things. But I also think that they're, they're the kinds of interactions and realizations where I should sit on it for a little while. I need to let it marinate and gain some perspective because I think I'm a little too emotionally riled about them. Not that it was anything super agitating or infuriating. It was just um, eye-opening in a way. Although then again, I, have, I, I feel like you're... Your, your capacity to have your eyes opened and like sort of your mind expanded by a certain experience, I think, you have, I think you have to be in sort of a mental place where you are open to having your eyes opened. Um, and so I think lately in trying to produce a lot of stuff for the podcast and in preparing some material to get back into the habit of daily blogging, I've been reading more widely. I've been reading faster. Um, I'm getting back in the habit of watching movies for the list. I just feel like my curiosity has kind of spiked. And maybe it's because of that, that, you know, I hang out with old friends or, you know, the other night I went out and had, um, I, I got hookah and, and a couple drinks for four hours with uh, Rosie, my ex. Uh, there was a date, which is worth mentioning, um, last weekend. I, it, and all, all three of those experiences were, were like decidedly enjoyable, but they were, they were eye-opening about various things. And I think they're just giving me perspective about time and how things have changed. It's been a very social few days. Uh, a handful of people who follow the project have, have sparked and then sustained with me lots of conversations through email and on Instagram, which is super nice. It's, um, to see that there are people who have just kind of listened to the podcast or they've read the blog posts and they have a sense of comfort and well, or just a sense of familiarity with me at this point, like such to such a degree that they can sort of shoot off a message commenting on something in my life and then comparing it to something in their own life. And then this 
I don't know. It's just a feeling of intimacy, and it's it's very nice and humbling to to see that. So, anyways, yeah. As usual, I didn't put any mail in this episode. I probably won't put any in the next one because I want to focus on sort of stories and Halloweeny shit. But um, if you uh, have anything you want to say, you want to write into the show, just send me a message through the um, Thousand Movie Project handle on Instagram, or you can go on uh, thousandmovieproject.com and email me through there. But yeah, I think that's about it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and to check out our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can always throw some money at Thousand Movie Project on PayPal or Venmo, or you can buy one of our two ebooks, Horny Nuns and The Ballad of Felicio Knightley, which both cost a buck and are both available on Amazon.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.